Good morning, everyone, and our first reading this morning is from Acts, chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. Acts 1, 1 to 11. In my former book, Theopolis, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly Two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. The second Bible reading for today comes from Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, first of all verses 1 to 8, and then skipping forward to verse 14 through to 17. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. Moving on to verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. 
but he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. This is the word of God. Well, that was exciting. I looked into my Bible and couldn't find my sermon notes. So I thought, I went and checked in my office. I'm glad we're doing the Nicene Creed. It goes a bit longer. Um, couldn't find it there. So I thought, well, do I tell them? That, that'll help them pray. Um, but anyhow, they turned up. It was sitting in my Bible. Right. Well, let's pray that in spite of the idiocy of the person at the front, good things may happen in our brains and in our hearts. Holy Father, we thank you that we can draw near to you as your children, wonderfully forgiven and welcome and accepted. You know how weak we are. You know areas where our thinking is awry and our life is out of step with where you'd like us to be. And we pray that you would use these few moments together, that through your holy word, by the working of your Holy Spirit, you would be our teacher and that we would be transformed in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, now, which group does Jesus Christ belong, do you think? I'm going to give you two groups. Does he belong to this group? Gandhi? Muhammad? Queen Victoria? Moses? Buddha? Esther? Or does he belong more in this group? Albo, the Prime Minister? Queen Elizabeth rather than Queen Victoria. Andrew Lubbock. Now, what do you notice about those two groups? There's something that binds the two groups together. Gandhi, Muhammad, Buddha, Queen Victoria, Albo, Queen Elizabeth, Cardinal Pell. Dead and alive. So some of those people are seriously big figures in history. And some of them we might respect, some of them we might think... Mixed bag. In which category does Jesus belong? Ted Turner, who started CNN some years ago, has got an interesting view of Jesus. He thinks that Jesus Christ is a loser. And before you feel sorry for Jesus, he feels that you're worse if you're a Christian. He said it's one thing to be a loser. It's another thing to choose to follow a loser. And the reason he says Jesus Christ is obviously a loser is because he gets put to death by his enemies. He does not win. He dies as a quite a young man, overpowered and seemingly out-strategized by people who disagree with him and hated him. Is that fair? Is Jesus a noble loser? I want to suggest to you today that as we look, continue to look through the Apostles' Creed, which we've been doing for a little while, uh, from about 100 AD, uh, the early Christians were saying this particular creed, or words almost identical to it, um, at baptisms in particular. And we've, we've looked at God, the creator of all things. Then we've come to Jesus, who is 60% of the creed is Jesus. And it's who he is. And then we've had the first of two on what he does. His person, the Son of God, the only Son. And uh, secondly, that he comes to suffer and die. 
and then the, the four points we're going to look at today ever so briefly. And I want to introduce Jesus to you as the parabola king. It's not just that he's good at maths, which he is, because maths is his invention. Uh, I admire it from a distance. <laughs> but many years ago, I heard someone describe the life of Jesus in terms of a parabola. Now, if you're not sure what a parabola is, so it's not the, not the, the Jesus who tells parables. I really, that could be confusing. That's what it was. It y equals x squared or x equals who knows what it is. But anyhow, it looks kind of nice. And it goes like this, and you can have fat ones or skinny ones. But Jesus is the king, he is the parabola king. Now, before we look at uh, more about that, a bit more on the math 60% of the creed is about Jesus. Here's an interesting thing I, I discovered just by counting my way through the Apostles' Creed. When it comes to the work of Jesus, born, Suffered, crucified, buried, sent to the dead. And then what happens after that, post the resurrection, interesting, there's 25 words that our early Christian brothers and sisters worked out to describe Jesus, the first half of the life of Jesus, the part that we would mostly spend time talking about. For the stuff that Jesus does after the tomb, it's 37 words. It's just interesting, isn't it? It's, it says almost 50% more words discussing what Jesus does after his death and into the future than it does on Jesus coming to earth and much of the stuff that the gospel contains. Because what Jesus does after his death is absolutely crucially important and the more focus you give it, the more confidence you will have as a Christian and the more joy you will have as a Christian. If we don't take that part seriously, we end up starving ourselves of some serious nutrients. So today we're going to look at singing an eternal song about Jesus, joining in perhaps the earliest creed about Jesus, it's long before the Apostles' Creed, and thirdly, enjoying the cheerful story that we do live in. A song, a creed, and a story. As we look at these four points from the Apostles' Creed. So, here's the creed. And as you say, we've looked at the, the God, the creator, who is Jesus. Andrew Vella led us through, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, died and buried, descended to the dead. This is the, the going down of the parabola. And then today, we're going to start doing the up. And you can see that just in the two words that pop up in either half, one talks of him descending, and the second part talks of him ascending, or assenting, as I've learnt we're supposed to say it. Well, now, perhaps the clearest part where God's word lays the basis and the foundation for the Apostles' Creed is Philippians 2, which before Josh reads it to us, it is, it is a song, almost certainly a song. There's debate amongst the scholars whether or not the Apostle Paul wrote it himself. Personally, I think he probably didn't. Or whether or not he's simply quoting a song that the early church sang. I think that's more likely. doesn't matter much. Either way, it is quite clearly a song. And in your Bible, it's probably set out in lines that show its poetic nature. So uh, Josh, I'm going to ask Josh to come and read it because it, it's the great passage that gives us this, the journey of the, the parabolic king. Uh, from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he emptied himself 
by taking the very nature of a slave, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, um, I hope you got the drama of that passage. It was God. Empties himself so that he could become a human. Tiny, tiny little critters. And then having become a human, he then humbles himself. He doesn't walk around saying, do you know who I am? Right? He, he humbles himself and serves. Classically, we see that on the night before he dies, when he literally you know, puts on an apron and washes his disciples' feet. When Jesus says again and again and again and again, the first will be last and the last will be first, the mark of greatness is that you're a slave of all. That's the mark of true greatness. Jesus, it's not a question of, you know, talks a good game but doesn't live it. He lives it. He has already emptied himself. Having emptied himself, he humbles himself to death, even death on the cross, which was the most shameful death that the Romans had and also the most gruesome. It was a great humiliation to die naked, uh, having lost control of uh, so many parts of your body as you're crucified. That's what Jesus did. It was a great descent down. Now, um, Andrew Vella last week mentioned this thing, the tenebrae service that we've done here a couple of times, the service of the shadows, where we just go through some of the suffering and each time a candle is is, uh, snuffed out and you finish in the darkness. And that's right. For us to take very seriously. It's not, it's not a game. It's not a myth. It's, it's someone who is real, who loves you, who made all things, and yet he suffered terribly. He was humbled. And then the response of God is exactly what Jesus says it is. He will exalt those who humble themselves. As 1 Peter says, if you want to exalt yourself, God will humble you. But if you place yourself under his hand and humble yourself, he will lift you up. And he can lift you up an awful lot higher than you can lift yourself. And so we have that second part of Philippians 2, don't we? Where the description of Christ being lifted up to the highest place, the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Just a question of when. So I bowed the knee to Jesus in 1974. Should have, should have got in earlier. Right? We know people have done it you know, in the last couple of weeks, both adults and young people here, right, have bowed the knee to Jesus. But everyone will bow the knee to Jesus. Atheists, religious figures, who cares? All will bow the, name, bow the knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord because Jesus Christ is Lord. Right? That's where we're going and that's what this is telling us. It's the great parabola he's the great parabola king and we see it we're going in the up part here right so on the third day he rose again it's the beginning of the triumph he ascends into heaven 
He is seated at the right hand of the Father and he will come back to judge. It's the great movement up, beginning with his resurrection, where he triumphs over death, which will triumph over you. He is the only person who claimed to do it and who showed that he could. And I take it the ascension, which is much more important in the Bible than it is certainly in my thinking, to be honest. We don't tend to think much about it. In many countries, it's a public holiday. Still, in many countries in Europe, some in Asia, it's a public holiday, like Christmas and Easter. Because it's a very significant event when Jesus ascends and returns to his Father's place, having safely died for you and brought new life and just forgiveness and all those things that Christ brings. It's like the journey of the Queen uh, on her way to be her coronation. And then she's seated. So much more importantly, because that's all, much as we like Lizzie, she's inconsequential. But Jesus is, he is seated now. That's where he is at this present moment. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. Now that's not so much a location as it is a function. The the right-hand woman or the right-hand man is not a person who's literally at your right hand necessarily, but it's the person who you trust the most to do the crucial things. And Jesus is is the Father's right-hand man. That's why Jesus, all authority is mine. The Father has entrusted it all to me. In John 5, he says, I'm going to judge. I raise the dead. All the things that only God can do, Jesus does it. That's where he is now in the present tense. But he will come back. He will come back as he promised. He keeps his promises. He said he would come back from the dead, which is a ridiculous claim, but he did that. And he says he will come back to judge, to divide the sheep from the goats, as he says. One of the things that is excellent when the, when the Christians kept thinking and working through and working out the way in which the truth about Jesus was attacked and misunderstood, that the creeds got a bit longer. And so the thing that they added for the return of Jesus, that he will come again, that they add in the Nicene Creed, which will say, no, we just said it, didn't we, sorry, um, is um, he will come again in glory. I want you to know it will not be like his first coming. When he came as a baby, he was ignorable. He was killable. He will come back in glory. Great power. So that's the eternal song that Philippians 2 is about. You see, the business with Jesus is not a private, personal matter. Oh, it's got deeply personal and private parts, but it's going to be public when he comes back and every eye will see him. So the scriptures say. So that's the first thing that gives us an introduction to this this king of the parables. Let's have a king of the parabolic. Let's keep going. I'm I'm getting myself confused. Now, here's a couple. I was going to try and make these, which means I was going to have to get a lot of help from people because I'm hopeless. Um, at making these slides but I found these ones in the net because this is not my idea the idea of Jesus following this parabola thing so you can see here this is the parabola shape his pre-existent glory as it said in Philippians 2 he was in the form of God he was one he was one with the father he humbles himself he empties himself he becomes human he's enfleshed incarnated and then he comes to die And then the Father lifts him up to the glory, to an exalted position. Or another one, same same basic idea. Before he comes to earth, see, unlike me, I I came into existence when I was conceived in my mother's womb. Jesus didn't. 
That's him sort of moving into our territory. He was back there when they made the, the universe together. He's incarnated, he's humbled, earthly life, the climax, the most terrible and yet also the most beautiful where he dies for us, and then the Father exalts him. This is his doing to himself, this is the Father doing to him. He is resurrected, he ascends, he is enthroned, he will come back and take his people to be with him. That's the dynamic of what Jesus is doing. If you stop at the bottom, you might, particularly if you don't understand the death of Jesus, Ted Turner doesn't, you might see him as a sad but noble loser. But that's to not see him. Because the other half is just as real. There's any number of these diagrams, we won't bore you with them all. But, um, well, let's have a look at the earliest creed that we've got. I think it's the earliest creed that we've got. Uh, it's not as if the early Christians got sort of waylaid and started making these, these creeds with all these definitions of things. No, 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 no. It's, it's happening very, very early. In fact, there's a fellow called um, Dr. Gary Habermas who's written literally thousands of pages at a scholarly level on the evidence for the resurrection and was involved in a wonderful debate with Anthony Flew, um, who was then, then the most prominent uh, atheist in the world, academically. In 1985, they had a, a three-day debate. Can you imagine a debate going for three days? And it was civil the whole way through uh, on whether or not Jesus rose from the dead. And the university that ran it had ten judges. Five of them were judges, a professional debate judge. I didn't even know there was such a thing, but America, apparently, you can make a living being a debate judge. So just to, to judge the quality of the argument... And the other five were just secular historians. And this debate went for a couple of days. You can, you can get a copy of it um, and, and read it. I've got a copy of a copy somewhere in my office. But um, of the ten judges who listened to the two or three days of debating, seven of them thought that uh, Gary Habermas had won the debate. And most of them thought quite clearly. Two of them thought that Anthony Flew had and one said it was a draw. Now, that's not proving that Jesus rose from the dead. But what it's showing us, in case you're not aware, I know most of you would be, that there is very good evidence pointing to the resurrection of Jesus. The idea that it's just a thing you do in faith is just nonsense. It's simply not the way the Gospels argue it, not the way the early apostles argue it. What do they keep saying in the book of Acts? We saw him. You killed him. God raised him. We saw him. And that's where they'll say that we touched him. In fact, as you know, one of the famous guys said, I won't believe unless I see him and touch him. At this point, they're, they're being empiricists. They want good, solid evidence. They ate meals with him after he'd risen from the dead. Now, let's have a look at 1 Corinthians 15 that was read for us. And um, Gary Habermas, and, and with very good reason, and a truckload of other scholars say that at this point, in fact, I think it's probably almost all scholars think, at this point the Apostle Paul quotes an earlier creed. And he does it, you can see it by a number of uh, things that he does and the way that the language is set out. And it probably comes from about 35 AD. It's probably within two to three years of Jesus' execution and resurrection. There was an attempt 100 years ago or so to suggest that the idea of Jesus rising from the dead was a weird, slow development that happened as Christianity went on. Jesus was just a fine chap with some nice ideas and the Christians blew him up into this resurrected from the dead thing. Which, as I've mentioned once before here, you, 
It's worth noticing that no one else does that. Buddhists don't feel any need to pretend that Buddha defeated death. Muslims, they know where, where Muhammad's body is buried. Jews never suggest that Moses conquered death. It's, it's a very weird idea. But it's what the Christians believe because they saw him. And very early on, it was, we now know it was absolutely... There's no form of Christianity where the resurrection of Jesus isn't absolutely central. So let's have a look at uh, 1 Corinthians 15 from about... Uh, 20 years, a bit less than 20 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. They're getting a bit confused about the resurrection because the idea of rising from the dead, as we're going to say, Andrew um, Vella will take us through the sort of last couple of words of the creed where we believe in the resurrection of the body. Right? That's a weird belief. And nowhere in the ancient world did anyone have a desire or a dream that would happen. It's a peculiarly Christian thing. And a Jewish thing that thinks that the body is inherently a good thing. Oh, it can be misused. Whereas Greek philosophy saw that the body was inherently a dodgy thing. It was full of bodily fluids and smells and things like that, and it rotted. Um, they couldn't believe that God would really be that interested in it, but he is. He's very committed to the things that he has created. And um, so what the early uh, Corinthians were getting muddled about the resurrection. They were beginning to think that there was no resurrection from the dead. Right, for them, and therefore Paul will say, either for Jesus. Look at verse, let me read you verse 3, where the apostle writes this. What I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. So it's very clear the apostle Paul is saying, I didn't get this direct from Jesus. I received this from people who followed him before me. He's talking here almost certainly of the visit he made after Christ met him to Jerusalem, where he spent time with the apostles. That's almost certainly the time when he learnt this creed. He says, let me remind you what I, what I received and gave to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then he appeared to the twelve. After that he appeared. Now, I emphasise the word that, not just because I'm particularly fond of the word that, but there's a, in, in the original language, there's a particular little three-letter word, or maybe four, depending on how you count the little, anyhow, a little word. And it, it basically it functions in Greek, so the Greek scholars tell me, like, like we would have inverted commas. It's a speech mark. It's a, it's a, it's a, he's quoting something. And you can see also by the rhythm in the language, you can almost see it in the English, but certainly you can in the original. He has a whole lot of that's. He says... The, both key sections, there's only two, two sections in this, uh, this creed, it's, very, it's a shorter creed than what we have, um, but there's two things that are absolutely essential, he says, of absolutely first importance to um, Christianity, to real Christianity. He says, according to the scriptures. Now, that doesn't mean that we believe that Jesus died because the scriptures said it, the, the gospels, or that Jesus rose and it comes because the scriptures said it. He's referring back to what Jesus does in Luke 24 and other places. How does Jesus teach the apostles, once he's risen from the dead, what does he do with them for the next 40 days? He teaches them from the Bible. He doesn't say, oh, well, the Old Testament, we won't do that. No, 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 he's a great believer that that's his dad's book. So he spends that month with the disciples teaching them that this is what the scripture said. This isn't something hasn't gone wrong that the Messiah has been put to death. This is what it said would happen. And that it said I would rise from the dead. So he's doing a Bible study with them. He's the Sydney Missionary Bible College. That's where they're off to. Only it's the one in Palestine a bit earlier. 
But so this is what he's doing here. So he said, this, that's what the scripture is saying. This is all rooted back in the Old Testament. But what it says is that Christ died and that he was buried. Christ rose and he appeared. Those two things go together. He died. Why does it mention burial? Because when you say someone's dead and buried or an idea or a prospect is dead and buried, it's like kind of really seriously dead when you buried it. It's gone. So Jesus didn't just die. He died and was buried. He didn't just rise. He rose and appeared. Now, this is the great evidence of the earlier statement. So he died, buried, rose, appeared. And there's a whole list of witnesses of over about 515 different witnesses. Frankly, if I was going to court about arguing about whether something happened or not, I'd be kind of pleased if I had 513 witnesses. I'd be pretty cocky, really. Although you never know quite what's going to happen in the court. Or if I was heading off to court and there were 515 or so witnesses who saw me doing something that I shouldn't have done, I think I'd suggest to my legal counsel, let's settle this out of court, shall we? There ain't no point going through this humiliation. But that's what Jesus has. Hundreds of people who saw him and touched him over those 40 days. This is the earliest creed. Uh, this is the earliest summary of what it is. And the, the, it's important, the apostles, that you don't lose this. The guts of Christianity is that he died and was buried and that he rose and appeared. I can't see how anyone can make any pretense of being anything like a Christian who, who doesn't believe either of those and doesn't make a big deal of both of them. Because that's what Jesus made a big deal of. He says very clearly he came in order to die. He sets up the meal of the Lord's Supper to remind us. And you know what we say? Oh, we'll come back to that at the Lord's Supper. So here is the heart and guts of Christianity. And then it goes on and says, in fact, is Andrew, Andrew Vella? Come on up, Andrew. I like to ambush Andrew when I can. Andrew was talking about something when he was working at the uni. And we're talking about how sometimes you, you get in a conversation about Jesus and, um, and all these other issues come up. You know, some hot, divisive social issue. And Andrew, when you were working with him, I think same-sex marriage thing was the big, was the big thing. Yeah. And Andrew just mentioned a thing that he did, which I thought was worth sharing. Yeah, so like when the same-sex marriage thing was happening at ANU, love is love. Christians are just, you know, Dorothy Downers trying to, like, cancel people's fun and, you know, they're old and don't know what they're talking about type thing. And so, like, in, in those discussions that I was having at, at uni, I was essentially, at some point, I was just like, well, let's concede the issue. Okay, love is love. Whatever that means, that tautology, let's pretend that that's true. Um, but what I, I think we live in the real world that Jesus rose from the dead, and because he did that, I listened to what he has to say. And the Bible says that Christians then shouldn't be mocked if he didn't rise from the dead, but should be pitied. And so I think if, if you can persuade to me that Jesus didn't rise, then I'll join your team. But for now, I think that's real, and I'm happy to discuss about that. So I'd move the conversation from the moral red-hot button issue to this is just, if Jesus didn't rise, I'm with you. Yeah. And, and when I had that, I thought, oh, that is, because I've spent a gazillion hours arguing some of these issues, and it doesn't make a scrap of difference. It doesn't matter the quality of the argument or the foolishness of the tautology, love is love, which is a ridiculous thing that no one actually believes, if you ask them and give them some examples. But 
it's to get back to the topic which is, did Jesus Christ rise from the dead? Because you might like to say, well, Christianity is fine without it. No, it ain't. Let me read you what the Apostle says, in the, as you heard in the reading. Listen to how logical and clear-headed he is here. This is real Christianity. He said, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. Right? So he's saying to these people, you know, if, if this hasn't happened, your faith is useless. It's a waste of time. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses or liars about God, for we've testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. Verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. You see the clarity of this. Right? It all hangs on real events of Christ walking out of the tomb as he said he would. Now, some of you will know many, many books have been written by very intelligent people who thought the resurrection was self-evident nonsense until they looked at the evidence. There's just a whole list of them going on the last couple of hundred years. But when people look at the evidence, they go, oh, my goodness. My frustration with people who I love and care for in my family, and they will not look at the evidence. And I, my, I'm increasingly, I don't think they're going to look at the evidence because I think they've got a dark suspicion that it might be good. Let me read you just one, a man, just that one comment from a man called Pincus Lapid, an Orthodox Jewish historian. So his natural prejudices and biases would push him away from believing in it. If you're an Orthodox Jew and you become a Christian, you are officially considered and treated as if you never existed. Photos taken off the wall, you're never mentioned in family gatherings. There's a strong reason not to believe something that might draw you towards Christianity. He writes a very short book called The Resurrection of Jesus. It caused a riot when it came out. Here's one of... Uh, Jewish scholarship's finest thinkers in history. Here's what he says. How is it possible that Jesus' disciples, who by no means excelled in intelligence, eloquence, or strength of faith, were able to begin their victorious march of conversion? In a purely logical analysis, the resurrection of Jesus is the lesser of two evils for all those who seek a rational explanation of the worldwide consequences of that Easter faith. Thus, according to my opinion, the resurrection belongs to the category of the truly real. The evidence is strong. And um, 1 Corinthians points to it. Do speak to me if you'd like to get some uh, material to read on that. Just before we go to the story at the end, um, I remember a guy called Andrew who was... Um, it's a great name, Andrew. There uh, should be more of them. But this... This particular Andrew um, was the church treasurer at the church that our family was going to at that time. And uh, he rang me up. I was working in the city. I said, he rang me up and said, hey, can we talk? I said, sure. You know, so we, we met for a cup of coffee. And he was really kind of a bit anxious. I said, what's wrong, mate? What's, 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 what's wrong? He said, he said, something happened to me in church on Sunday. Well, that could be good. What happened? He said, I was saying the Apostles' Creed. I've said it hundreds of times. He said, I got to the part where it said, on the third day he rose again from the dead. And he said, it was like someone slapped me across the back of the head. And I said, my God, he's alive. He's risen. And he had him in that category of great dead people without meaning to. I mean, if you asked him, did he believe it? He would have said yes. But he realised by his sudden response, he said, oh, my goodness, he is alive. On the third day he walked out of the tomb. I said, brother, that's great news. He said, no, it's not. The church is going to be furious with me that I've been the church treasurer for years and I hadn't got it. I said, no, they're not. <laughs> they're going to be excited. And they were. 
I don't know whether he was a Christian or not, but it's, at that point, the penny dropped that Jesus was not a great man of the past. He's alive. You can know him. You know, his power can change you in the here and now, and you will meet him when he comes back as judge. So this is the earliest creed about Jesus. We've looked at an early song, an early creed. Lastly, much more briefly, the cheerful story. Look, there's a bloke called Glenn Scrivener, and a couple of years ago, we had him, and he, he, he did a talk here. Oh, oh, what a coincidence. I might have mentioned it anyhow, but Glenn happens to be here. Welcome back. And he gave a talk called What is Life, Tragedy or Comedy? And, and I don't know, I can't remember the, all the details of the talk, but I did learn from a couple of essays I read from Mr. Tolkien, who writes these really short stories, but you, you don't need to read them because they've been made into movies, which is much better. But well, there are two sorts of stories, two sorts of stories that we live in. One is a tragedy, one is a comedy. If it's Shakespeare, the tragedy ends with a pile of bodies. On the, if, it's, if it's Shakespeare, if it's a comedy, it normally finishes up with a wedding and everyone dancing and singing in true love, etc., etc. Now, the question for us to work out is to dare to look at the question of what sort of story are you living in? A tragedy or a comedy? The Apostles' Creed places us in a comedy where Christ dies and up from the grave he arose. And you yourself will share in that victory, right? When you receive your new body when he comes back. Is it ridiculous? No. Is it hard to believe? Yeah. Sometimes good news is hard to believe, and this is purely good news that we get. Jordan Peterson, some of you will know, have read bits about it, seen him on the radio, whatever. Seen him on the radio? I should sit down, I'm getting silly. But um, I've, I've heard him a few times with journalists, and, and they get a bit edgy because our society is committed to be trivial. And he says, human life is a tragedy, and at some stage you have to face that. Everything ends in death. Every loving relationship you're in comes to death. Either you die and leave it, or they die and leave you. That's if they don't leave you earlier. And then there's a lot of sickness and health, and you know, we, we peak at, I peaked decades ago, right? It's just been a sad, pathetic downhill run since then in so many ways, right? It's a tragedy that we live in. Or what Jesus does is he comes in the middle of it, embraces the tragedy and transforms it by his apparently tragic death. But it's not. It's a wonderful death where he dies so we can be forgiven. And what the creed does is it wants you to remember that we serve the parabolic king. He did go down to the depths and he came back up and he lives and he will come back. He is the one person who has triumphed over death. So that, um, so that's a little comic. That there's, there's Jesus with the empty tomb. The body is missing. He appeared to people. And there's the graves of all the other great people. Because in the end, Jesus is the only one who not only dies so our sins can be forgiven, but dies so that we may have ultimate victory with him, in him. You know, we... Um, Andrew mentioned that Tenbrae service at the shadows. I, I went, every now and then, I go to very different churches to the ones I normally go to. And I went one time with a friend to 
Christchurch St. Lawrence, which is the sort of the, the, the fanciest upmarket high church in Sydney. And I went to an Easter service they had, an Easter vigil, they called it. It started on Saturday night and it starts all dark and it's, it's sort of the opposite of it. The, and then when you get to midnight and they timed it perfectly, the place went nuts. It was such fun to be there. Just, I was a bit of a spectator. There were bells being rung. People had brought pots and pans, were banging them together. They, they, suddenly the lights came on, all the candles turned up, all the bright colours were... And suddenly the building came alive and they opened up the back door. I didn't realise that they'd had the back door shut the whole time while I had incense going, so it was good, you could hardly breathe. And suddenly fresh air came in. And it was a, it was a very almost sensual way of saying, this is what the resurrection is. It's the opposite of the candles being put out. It's, it's the triumph of, of the God of love and grace in Jesus. He will come back, as he promised, right? when he will put all things to right. New bodies, new life, new heaven, new earth. But this is his story. And he is the ruler of the heavens and the earth. Therefore, the, the, the saying of the Apostles' Creed or the, any of the creeds brings us back to this great sense of triumph, no matter what the momentary tragedies that we're living through. And many of you are. Right? In the end, he will have the last word. And this brief momentary affliction is being used to prepare us for an eternal weight of glory. This is the parabolic king. Right? He rose. He reigns. He will return. Right? And we trust him and we sing our little hearts out. In fact, we're going to sing partly just to sing this into our souls, really, and to rejoice in what an amazing comedy Jesus has brought us into. Let's pray before we sing. Lord Jesus, sometimes the news of the gospel is almost too good. It feels too good. But we know that you've shown it by your resurrection from the dead and the evidence there. Thank you that you've swept so many of us up into trusting you. And we do pray that you would help us to believe in you as the king who comes and lowers himself to die in our place and then is lifted up to the right hand of the Father and that on a day just like today, you will return and we'll be with you forever. Help us, Lord, to know this in our brains, to understand it, and to rejoice in it with all our hearts and souls. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.